What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have a Russiagate update with Bob Dreyfus. He'll explain the significance of the guilty plea last week by Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, what it all means for Trump and impeachment. Also, how to interview a Nazi. We have two approaches. The New York Times, which wrote last week about the Nazi next door as an ordinary nice guy, and our Gary Young, who did a confrontational interview with Richard Spencer, one of America's leading white supremacists. He'll tell us about it, and we'll listen to tape from that conversation. But first, Alabama votes on Tuesday. The most recent polls show a tight race between the notorious Republican candidate Roy Moore, accused of sexual assault on a 14-year-old girl, and Democrat Doug Jones, the heroic civil rights attorney who put the men in jail who bombed that church in Birmingham in 1963 and killed four black girls. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Howell Raines. Of course, he's a legendary figure in journalism, an Alabama native who joined the New York Times in 1978 and was executive editor of the paper from 2001 to 2003. He's also published a novel, two memoirs, and an unforgettable oral history of the civil rights movement. It's called My Soul is Rested. We reached him today at home in Alabama. Howell Raines, welcome back. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be back. We've got an interesting uh, race down here, to say the least. (laughs) Yes. Well, the Washington Post poll a couple of days ago, this is a poll of likely voters, has uh, Democrat Doug Jones at 50 percent and Roy Moore at 47. Do you think that's about right? Yeah, it is right in the sense that this is a very tight race. And uh, we have a new poll out today from a Florida uh, polling firm called Gravis Marketing. Uh, I don't know who they were employed by, but they have a 1,200-person sample that shows uh, Jones leading by four points, uh, 48 to 44. Now, that said, what all polls have trouble measuring, even if they're trying to reach likely voters, is exactly who will where the turnout will go. And that I think we're definitely in a critical position uh, for as far as turnout goes right now. And I think it's the most uh, competitive and theatrical race we've had in Alabama since 1972, when George Wallace defeated a New South progressive named Albert Brewer by running the most racist campaign in Alabama history. This one, of course, is, is haunted by these allegations against Judge Moore of sexual misconduct with minors. What is being tested here, put most bluntly, is whether the swing voters in Alabama would rather send a suspected pedophile to the Senate than vote for a Democrat. Mm. That sounds stark, but that's, uh, I think, accurately uh, where we are. I'm just back from what 
should be the heart of Moore country in northern Alabama. Uh, Winston County is a famous political culture in Alabama. It tried to secede from Alabama when Alabama seceded from the Union. It was overwhelmingly pro-Union in its politics, and as a result of that Union heritage, was for many years the only Republican county in Alabama. And, uh, these are Republicans who were Republican before Goldwater and Reagan made yes. you know, the GOP, the white person's party throughout the Deep South. This was the so, party of uh, Lincoln. That's right. Uh, it was, uh, Wallace did well there, but in all local races, they generally had Republican office holders. One of the reasons I wanted to go there was my great, uh, my grandfather, Robert Kyle Walker, was a postmaster and justice of peace in that county. Hey. And uh, he died around 1970. So, uh, and he's buried in Winston County. So I was able to, I think I had some street cred there because my, right. my grandparents, uh, are buried in the small cemetery, Baptist Cemetery in Arley, Alabama. So I was able to talk to a wide range of people. Winston is famous for not for being pretty tight-lipped and having that old Appalachian Mountain suspicion of outsiders. Hmm. But I found a, a lot of folks ready to talk. And the most interesting thing that happened to me on my trip was in driving across the entirety of Winston County from east to west on two-lane roads, I saw one Roy Moore sign. Mm. Uh, one elected official in a, in a small town there told me he thought some, the wives of some local residents had made the husbands take the, the uh, Roy Moore signs off the front lawn. Hmm. So it's, it's a uh, fraught situation in regard to how much the sexual allegations will hurt Moore. I think they have dampened and suppressed the Republican vote, possibly enough to allow Jones to win if he gets a substantial black vote. And that is the other uh, factor that's very much in play in terms of turnout. Yeah, we were alarmed at a report last week in the New York Times from Selma, in the heart of the Black Belt, where the story reported that uh, in interviews a week ago with 10 African-Americans at a strip mall near the Walmart in Selma, six of the 10 said they were not aware that a Senate race was underway. Now, 10 is certainly a tiny sample, but still that seems alarming, doesn't it? Yeah, and there are other anecdotal indications from around the state that the interest in the black community is not what one would expect or what Jones would hope for. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, and I think the most important one, is the very good church-based voter turnout uh, organizations in the black community that were built up in the civil rights movement have gradually, over time, uh, been allowed, decay is too strong a word, but have withered in comparison, somewhat in comparison to their former strength. They were a tremendous force in the 70s in, in integrating the Alabama legislature. Now, the other factor that no one seems to know how to measure is there are some conservative black evangelical ministers yeah. who, who are drawn to war more because he is an ardent anti-abortionist, or anti-abortion candidate, I should say. So that's a factor. I think if I could visit 25 black churches next Sunday morning, I think I could make uh, some prediction about, about black turnout. I think it's very important for Jones that the black ministers in this state, uh, as they traditionally do, 
speak very candidly to their conversation about who they should vote uh, to their uh, uh, congregations about who they should vote for. And Jones has brought in John Lewis and other civil rights heroes, and I think they will continue to try to build the black vote, but not so overtly that it stimulates a backlash among conservative whites. And, you know, we are well into the 21st century, and race and religion are still the dominant factors uh, bearing on Alabama politics. Donald Trump has finally and fully endorsed Roy Moore. How much is that really going to help him? Trump did endorse a candidate in the Republican primary. He endorsed the guy that Moore was running against, Senator Luther Strange, and Strange lost by nine points. These endorsements of these two men underscore a division in the Republican Party in Alabama that is very sharp and even more dramatic than a similar division in the National Republican Party. The grassroots blue-collar Republicans here feel that the elite uh, suburban Republicans have not adequately supported Moore, and that indeed some of them are trying to punish working-class Republicans for preferring Moore over the corporate establishment lawyer, Big Luther Strange, in the Republican Senate primary. That said, I think if Big Luther Strange was the nominee, lacking the the scandal element that uh, is haunting uh, Moore, I think he would be well ahead just based on the ingrained habit of modern Alabama, modern white Alabamians to vote for any Republican. You know, we feel like these charges of sexual crimes are overwhelmingly significant, but they, that Washington Post poll found that was n- that Roy Moore's alleged sexual conduct was not the biggest issue in Alabama. When they asked likely voters, what's the most important issue to you? 41% said health care, and only 26% said moral conduct. 14% said yeah. abortion, and nothing else really appeared on on the list. So explain that to us. Yeah, I think it's very important to understand that this race is a race of micro-constituencies. For example, Moore has been hurt, I think, quite uh, quite seriously in the affluent white Republican suburbs of Birmingham, Mobile, Huntsville, among what is sometimes called the soccer mom constituency. Mm -hmm. These are Republican housewives from prosperous families who have young children. And it's clear that when you ride around their neighborhoods, the lawns are coated with Doug Jones signs. So that could be a micro constituency that could really tilt the race to Jones. The other constituency that I discovered up in the Hill Country, and this is in a county that voted 90% for Donald Trump, is notwithstanding what Trump may or may not say about the race, I detected some erosion on the sexual scandal issue among older church women. This would be women, say, 50 and up, and and in in many cases, probably 65 uh, and up. Erosion in those two female constituencies who normally vote Republican are a very serious problem for Roy Roy Moore. And sticking with this uh, 
this Washington Post poll that showed that the biggest issue for likely voters was health care. That could mean two things. It could mean they want to abolish Obamacare because it's, uh, you know, the oppressive federal government, or it could mean they want better uh, health care, which, which uh, Doug Jones has been talking about. I read that 40% figure as a plus for Jones. Mm-hmm. It shows that there has been some public education on the health care issue simply because so many Alabamians, particularly rural Alabamians of both races, have to have Medicaid coverage for their families and for the elderly who they are responsible for uh, for taking care of. The previous governor, who's been driven out of office by scandal, Governor uh, Robert Bentley, he was adamantly opposed to taking those Medicaid funds from Washington and from the federal government that Alabama was actually entitled to simply because he, as a physician, said he didn't want to have any have any hand in government-funded health care. I remember writing a, a piece at the time that I wondered if he, what he made of the Hippocratic Oath yeah. uh, when he was saying he's going to withhold health care spending from p- people who live in poverty. But in any event, there's been some public education on that, and I think it plays into Jones's emphasis on what he calls kitchen table issues. Yeah, and it's an, it's appeal. Let's not argue about history and old divisions, or even about party. Let's look at what we need to do to uh, help middle class families uh, economically and on health care and and infrastructure issues and things of like that. So I think that's had an impact uh, uh, for him. Now, 70% of the more supporters in one poll that I saw say outright that they disbelieve the eight women who have said he pursued them sexually when they were uh, in early to to, uh, late adolescence, um, when he was in his uh, 30s. I think the men, the white Republican Trump men of Alabama are in denial about these charges. They simply say, as one said to me, in uh, Arley, Alabama, outside the local uh, coffee shop where there's a 12-seat table called the Liar's Table, <laughs> and the men of the community gather there every morning to, uh, to argue politics and talk Alabama football and drink coffee. Liar's Table is, is said humorously in that, yes. in that community. But I talked to three men who had, from that group, all three were strong, more supporters. Two of the three were, were aggressively pushing the line that these young women had been paid to lie, presumably by some sinister outside liberal force. Hmm. And uh, one of the men even went so far as to say, all this was 40 years ago, and so what does it matter now? And the other thing that is said, as one of these men said rather colorfully, back in those days, groping was okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so that's the mindset of the true believers. And I think this is going to be a really important election historically. In virtually every important election since the 1840s, Alabama has usually chosen, sent to Congress, figures sent to Congress or to the governorship, personalities who were bound to embarrass Alabama on the national stage. Alabamians are acutely aware of that 
but there is a defiant streak uh, in Alabamians that says, we don't care what you think of us, we're going to do what we want to do, and then turn around and say, well, they're trying to depict us all as ignorant hillbillies. So this is a kind of approach avoidance conflict that uh, runs throughout Alabama history. If Doug Jones wins, this will be the first time Alabamians have chosen to avoid embarrassment with their vote. Howell Raines reporting on the Liars Table in Winston County in Alabama's Hill Country. Howell, of course, the legendary Alabama newsman. Howell Raines, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now it's time for our Russiagate update. For that, we turn, of course, to Bob Dreyfus. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone, and he's also written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, and Salon. Bob Dreyfus, welcome back. Hey, thank you very much. So, anything new in the past week on the Russiagate front? <laughs> yeah, the news is coming fast and furious, I would say. And, and the big headline needless to say, is the fact that Trump is now facing the fact that Mueller is literally inside the White House, having nailed Michael Flynn, the general who served as his national security advisor for a few weeks earlier this year. Um, Flynn reached that famous plea agreement with Mueller. Apparently, that means that he's now actively cooperating with the investigation and if I were Donald Trump or anybody in his inner circle, I'd be worrying pretty much about what Flynn is saying and who he's saying it to and what he knows. Trump's lawyers uh, in the past week have also changed their uh, defense, at least for the public. Instead of saying uh, there was no collusion, they're now saying Collusion is not a crime. There is no crime called collusion, which I guess they are right about. So what exactly are the crimes that special counsel Robert Mueller might be investigating? Well, first of all, I don't think he has to find evidence of a crime committed by Trump, um, although there's probably plenty of those. Um, but in his final report, which would include, obviously, all the people that he manages to indict or to reach agreements with, when he finally issues his final report, and who knows when that will be, if he lays out a pattern of collusion or cooperation with a foreign power to tilt the electoral balance in this country, that's something that would be taken up by Congress uh, as an impeachable offense, and an impeachable offense doesn't have to be a crime. So ultimately, we're talking about whether or not Trump can be uh, impeached or otherwise driven out of office for uh, this question of collusion or cooperation or encouraging the Russians to get involved in you know, mixing it up with the election. But certainly there are going to be crimes involved. And some of those crimes may be related to collusion with Russia, and some of them may be not related to collusion with Russia. Um, they could be financial crimes. They could be money laundering crimes. There could be the kind of things that he's already nailed 
Manafort and Gates and Flynn and Papadopoulos with, lying to the FBI, obstruction of justice, all these things are are crimes that would go into Mueller's hopper. The one day the lawyers, Trump's lawyers, seem to be most preoccupied with his obstruction of justice. They've also been arguing that the president, by definition, by constitutional authority, cannot be guilty of obstruction of justice because he is the highest law enforcement officer in the land, and it's up to him to decide what, how, what are the priorities and practices of law enforcement? Yeah, well, I uh, think that I think that calls into question. That calls into question how smart Trump's lawyers are. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, if I remember correctly, Bill Clinton was impeached on the basis of obstruction of justice because he lied to the FBI about um, sexual activities. He wasn't impeached over the sex itself, but he was impeached for obstruction of justice, and that was one of the main counts against him. And I just read today an accounting of how many current Republican senators and House members voted to either impeach or convict Clinton on exactly that charge 18 years ago. So I don't think there's any question that the president can indeed obstruct justice. And the biggest and fattest obstruction of justice that could happen would be if he were to fire Mueller or otherwise try to block his investigation. But of course, he's fired FBI Director Comey. He said he did that because of Russia. He told the Russians the day afterwards in the Oval Office when he met with the ambassador and the foreign minister that finally I got this Russia thing off my back. So I think that obstruction of justice will be one of the main lists of things that Mueller comes up with when he's when he's done. Well, I want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture here. What did Russia want from this relationship and what did Trump want? It's easy to see what Russia wanted back when the Obama administration was coming to an end, Russia wanted to end the sanctions imposed by Obama after Putin seized Crimea. And since Hillary Clinton was part of the Obama administration, clearly she was never going to do that. So Russia had an excellent reason to at least to hope that Trump got elected and to try to make help Trump get elected. Of course, Trump campaigned once in a while. He would say he was in favor of better relations with Russia, which is a perfectly legitimate issue for a political campaign to raise. But the bigger mystery still is what did Trump want? Did he just want a more peaceful world? And why didn't he just say that? Why is there all this lying and covering up and firing people? Where, where do we stand now on what we think Trump wanted out of this new relationship with Russia? Well, I think what Trump wanted was to get elected. Yeah. And his views on issues, whether it's domestic or foreign policy issues, have jumped all over the place. And it's it, it's wrong to think of Trump as having some coherent worldview on either yes. domestic or world affairs. He yes. He's all about Trump all the time. But then you have a pattern of his relations with the Russians going back 
30-some years now, over several trips to Russia, over interactions with the Russians. There's a long, long history to his involvement and engagement with Russia. And a lot of it has to do with business, with finance, with uh, potential real estate deals and hotel projects in Russia, with Russian support to his businesses. And I think it's fair to speculate here, but both Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, have a lot of questionable ties to Russian financiers, to money laundering, to various Russian oligarchs in Russia and Ukraine, and to their banks in Switzerland and Cyprus and elsewhere. And so I think Trump just had a, a kind of natural relationship to Russian money that was crucial to his rise as a billionaire in the United States. And it was something that he thought he could use to his advantage during the campaign. At least that's how I see it. And indeed, just in the last day or two, we have learned that special counsel Robert Mueller has subpoenaed Trump's bank records from Deutsche Bank following the money here, uh, which is, again, getting even closer to Trump and, as you have said, what he is really about. What do we know? What do we think about what Mueller is looking for in subpoenaing the Deutsche Bank records? Well, how do we know this is important, right? If you remember an interview that Trump gave, and I, I can't remember now who it was with, but it was one of the networks, he said, the red line for me is going after my finances. Like, yes. look at Russia all you want, Russia Gate, look at collusion, I don't care. But if you start going after my finances or my family's finances, then that's a red line. The, the Deutsche Bank was Trump's main, and some people have said his only go-to source for bailing out his various ventures that ran into trouble, that ran into debt, his hotels and casinos and other projects. Um, he got huge sums of money from Deutsche Bank, both business-wise and his personal finance. Deutsche Bank appointed a woman to be kind of his private banker. Deutsche Bank is an institution that has been engaged for a long time in laundering Russian money. And how do we know that? We know that because the federal government and other governments in Europe have investigated and penalized and fined Deutsche Bank. They paid a $630 million fine, I believe it was, for illegal money laundering. And if it turns out that Trump and Kushner, or either one of them, have done shady deals with Deutsche Bank that could involve Russian money laundering, I think that's where Mueller could be going with all of this. And uh, I'm, I'm quite certain that that's one of the reasons why Trump was so alarmed over Mueller's ability to investigate his past financial dealings. One of the things that Mueller can do is with the snap of his fingers, get all of Trump's tax returns. We don't see those. Trump refused to release his tax returns famously during the, the campaign, but they're certainly accessible to Mueller from the IRS. So he can put a lot of pieces of the puzzle together and come up with things that could be evidence of uh, criminal activity by Trump and many of his um, associates. 
Last question about the it's about the time frame. Trump's lawyer Ty Cobb has told the president that Mueller will be wrapping up his investigations pretty soon by the end of January is the latest he thinks. Uh, I wonder if you agree with Ty Cobb about that. Yeah, I don't think too many people do agree with Cobb about that. Um, This is an investigation. Remember, it didn't start when Mueller was appointed. This is an investigation that the FBI began in July of 2016. So this has been going on for 16 or 17 months. It could go on for another 16 or 17 months. Um, It could be quicker than that. But certainly there's no reason to think that it's in its final phases. In fact, it seems like they're, you know, they're just beginning to get up to speed with these various kind of bombshell announcements about indictments and so on. Bob Dreyfus, you can read his weekly reports on the Russiagate investigations at thenation.com. Thanks, Bob. It's great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about how to interview a Nazi. For that, we turn to Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. His most recent book is Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. It was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. We reached him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. We have two examples of how to interview a Nazi. The first comes from the New York Times, our national newspaper of record. Last week, published a profile of a young couple who we learned registered for their wedding at Target. They were interviewed at Applebee's. She wore a sleeveless jean jacket and ordered the boneless wings. He said he likes Seinfeld and King of the Hill. And they're both Nazis, you wrote about this yeah. for the nation. Let's pick up the story of this couple, the I guess the Hovaters, is that what we call them? What exactly were their yeah. Nazi beliefs? Well, interestingly, if you if you read the piece, you don't really get a sense of what their beliefs are much. The piece really dwells on their ordinariness. Goodness gracious, these are Nazis just like me and you. Not that me and you are Nazis, but they really could live next door, and they, you know, all of the banalities of their lives as though, I mean, first of all, as though Nazis come with horns and tridents, you know, mm. then. and so there is this bizarre normalization of who they are as though, I mean, a Nazi's got to live next door to someone, right? <laughs> and then, but if they're the Nazis next door. And on the other hand, no real interrogation of what they're about, what they do, what they, you know, what they think. It's not like you come away not knowing what a Nazi is, but you don't have any sense of what that impact might be on uh, in, in, in modern times. Now, you've had some experience lately interviewing one of America's leading Nazis, Richard Spencer. Remind us, who exactly is he, and how did it happen that you interviewed him? So Richard Spencer is the uh, self-proclaimed leader of the alt-right. He's a self-avowed white supremacist, 
And um, I was doing a documentary for Channel 4 in England. We were driving from Maine uh, to Mississippi, from the Wiley State to the Blackest. And we stopped in Tennessee, where there was a white supremacist conference. Now, I'm black and British, and that is not the kind of conference I would hang about at normally, to interview Spencer. And I guess the first thing I would say about that that issue of how to interview a Nazi is if you must, you know, that the first issue is, do you have to talk to them? Do you have to give them a platform? Why are you doing this? And I thought long and hard about that with where Spencer was concerned. There were other things I'd thrown out of the schedule, including interviewing the clan, because I thought the clan don't really represent much, but that this guy through his connections to Breitbart and Breitbart and Bannon, there was a kind of connection there. These were exactly the kind of people who were being emboldened by Trump and who claimed to give some kind of um, intellectual veneer to the uh, Trump moment. And however stupid Trump people might think Trump is, they usually, with, with any of this stuff, there's always some kind of intellectual veneer. So that was why we decided to interview him. But then came the issue of, let's call it choreography, really. So how? And my feeling was, if you're going to interview a Nazi, you do so to challenge them. You don't do so to, to listen, you know, let them just kind of propagate their views and you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, these are people with a known connection to genocide and violence. You have to challenge them. That meant I wasn't going to sit down with him. I wasn't going to shake his hand. Uh, I would be civil. I wouldn't, you know, just start attacking him like, you know, Bill O'Reilly or something would if I was on his show. Uh, and so the first question I asked him was, you want to build an ethno state? But, you know, why would you want that? And what was strange about this interview, to me, I'm just used to my racist having a bit more sophistication, basically. <laughs> and um, so I imagined that the issue would be his slickness, smoking him out, stopping him sounding plausible. We have a clip uh, from your interview with Richard Spencer. The Guardian posted it uh, uh, online. Let's listen to one minute of Gary Young's uh, interview with Richard Spencer. So yeah. you're, you, you're really proud of your racism, aren't you? You're really proud to I'm be proud a bigot. I'm proud to be a white man. You're proud to, that's different from being proud if to be Africans a bigot. If Africans had never existed, world history would be ex almost exactly the same as it is today. Yeah, you just Because we saying, are the genius that drives it. You know, I How just, do you deny that? Sorry? How can you really deny that? You're talking nonsense. How am I talking nonsense? You'll if never be an Englishman. You don't get and, to tell me yeah, I what do, I actually. will be. Because my name's Richard Spencer. So have, <laughs> my and, name's Richard Spencer yes. and I approved this message. Yes, and so therefore I actually... I actually, ridiculous I actually, Because you've got nothing to say. I was looking for someone who could give some intellectual ballast to what's going on in this country in terms of race and in terms of white people, but I found the wrong guy because you mm. don't know what you're talking about. What's striking to me is how, on the one hand, how confident he is in his assertions. He thinks it's all just completely obvious and doesn't really require evidence or argument. I'm sure you noticed this. I mean, I was, I was dumbfounded by it. I, do, um, I don't think that 
Nazism is a stupid ideology. I think it's vile and violent, but I don't think people who follow it have to be stupid. And I did assume some kind of gloss would be there, but he was he was wrong on many cases, factually inaccurate. You know, he talks about Britain being an ethno state and there being no blacks in Britain during Roman times, when actually there were many, and there was a Roman black Roman emperor, Septimus Severus. And, you know, he said he just said a lot of things that were factually wrong. And then in his argument, he would just say things that were implausible, like, you know, African-Americans benefited from white supremacy. They are better off now in America than they would be if they lived in Africa, which first raises the question, well, don't you think Africa would be in a better state if, you know, they hadn't had a couple of centuries of stolen land and stolen labor, but also, you do know, don't you, Spencer, that black men in D.C. have a lower life expectancy than men on the Gaza Strip, that uh, African-Americans actually aren't doing that well, that the infant mortality rate for black kids in Chicago is on a par with the West Bank, that African-Americans in the U.S. live in third-world conditions. Now, I didn't kind of argue the toss with him about an awful lot of this stuff. I would just say to him, you're talking nonsense. You're talking nonsense. That's not true. And he became increasingly bold, including insisting that I could not be British and black. And I said to him, and it's not in the clip, but I said to him, look, you've been banned from 27 countries. I can go back, including Britain. I can go back tomorrow if I like. Good point. I speak French and Russian. I'm more European than you'll ever be. And that's not an aspiration. That just happens to be in terms of where I'm from, not my ethnicity, but my geography, this is where I'm from. And it it baffles you in a way that it baffles very few other people at this point, really. I want to go back to that New York Times story about the Nazi next door being such an ordinary, polite, uh, low-key guy. Is there anything in common with the way the New York Times portrayed their Nazi next door and the way the mainstream media portrays terrorists after they've engaged in in mass murder? It's almost exactly the same. It's almost exactly the same. They, they, um, whenever there's a profile of a uh, terrorist in Britain, often but not exclusively jihadis, and I say not exclusively because one of the most heinous acts of terrorism in recent times was uh, uh, a white terrorist who killed a British MP who shouted Britain first, and it was that organization that Trump retweeted uh, their stuff um, uh, earlier earlier in the month. But um, whenever there is uh, jihadi uh, terrorism, it's the same thing. And, it's, and the, 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 the papers say, you know, he was a regular guy. He, he liked fish and chips. He supported Man United. He used to drink a bit, and he had a girlfriend, and then something happened. Mm. And... They never really look at what happened. <laughs> they just marvel at the fact that this person did come from somewhere and it was somewhere very recognizable. And similarly, this notion, they don't fall out of a clear blue sky, these people. These Nazis are very much the product of an American moment, an American racial system. They are, 
they're not a pleasant product, but in some ways they're a logical product of the country that's had 200 years of slavery, 100 years of apartheid, and just over 50 years of um, non-racial democracy. Gary Young uh, wrote about how to interview a Nazi at thenation.com. Gary, thanks so much. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.